chapter 7, we're on the topic of Satan and demons. That's right. And of course, once again, you should not never capitalize. Just a way to go, mm, get back. But that's right. Whatever you can do. But that's right. Satan and demons, what we saw again, folks, is there really a devil? We saw the amazing statistic uh, several times already. Can you believe it? 65% of people say, uh-uh, no such thing. It's just symbolic. Really could have fooled me today, this afternoon, when that guy who was demon-possessed came in. Not joking. Man, I tell you what, that was pretty wild today. Talk about some serious action. Yeah, a guy walks in today, and man, he was possessed. And it wasn't just drugs. He was all messed up, totally unkempt. He was erratic, his eyes, his body, countenance, everything jittery. And uh, usually your first clue is when the voices start speaking. And as I was witnessing to him to recognize, I went for the gusto. I said, hey, dude, I've been delivered from demons too. And I gave him my testimony and started telling about Jesus. And the, he was saying, ah, the voices in my head, they're laughing and stuff like that and, and going on. And every time I start talking about Jesus, they you know, want to skirt the issue and all that stuff and whatever. And, but I'm just so glad that was make-believe. Yeah, it happens a whole lot more than what we want to think. Uh, what's Satan about? His origin, his fall. We've already seen that. On page 74, we've seen that. Not only the fall of Satan, but his cohorts, one-third of the angels, who turned into demons is what it rhymes with. That's right, demons. And uh, what's the present state of demons? And what in the world are they up to? Okay, they're not just out there, but they're doing something. It would behoove us to find out what they are about. Well, we saw, number one, the demons uh, use men to oppose God. Anything that has to do with God's, God's will, God's directions, God's way, that's what they want to oppose. 76, we saw on the page there, number two, they can oppress the mind. Number three, they can oppress the body. Number four, they alienate men from God. And number five, they uh, hinder men's general welfare, okay? And this is kind of where we picked up last time. How do Satan and demons affect the believers? That's just kind of their activity in general. But how do they affect the believer? Well, the first one that we got onto was the influence through the world, okay? As we saw last time, that's these three influences that we're now talking about here uh, in the old uh, you and I, uh, in the world. And where we left off there now is the second one of how he gets at us, okay, is the influence through our flesh. Now, as we've seen before in our studies, if you guys recall, that, that word flesh, okay, uh, is kind of a Christianese word. So really what he's talking about is the outer layer of our skin called the epidermis. No, okay, that's the Christianese word, okay, that means the old you, the old, uh, well, what's that? Well, we dealt with that uh, in great detail, and this is why I lift this up there once again. Before man is the tripart being, we're made up of a spirit, a soul, and a body, okay? That's the way it was before the fall of man. Everything was great. We're spirit because God is spirit, and that gave us the ability to commune with him. That's the eternal part of us, if you will, also, created in the image of God morally and spiritually. But after the fall of mankind, we became spiritually dead, Paul says in Ephesians, uh, spiritually dead in our transgressions and sins. We know that means spiritual because how many guys are dead right now? How many guys were... Okay, it's a spiritual thing. It's not a physical death. You will die physically. That's a penalty of sin. Uh, but you're spiritually dead. And so now you've got not just the spirit cut off, so to speak, from God, but now you've got a body that's got this sin nature. That's the flesh. That's the rebel in you. Okay, that's the you that if you wanted to wake up one day as a non-Christian and say, I, for the rest of my time on earth... Forget that. I, for 24 hours, am going to do everything totally perfect. Never works. Because there's a part of you inherited from the fall of man called the sin nature, the flesh, the old you, that rebels against the things of God. Okay? Now, here's the good news. After you become born again, the Bible says you become indwelled with the Holy Spirit. You become his temple. Okay? And uh, Anathan in the Greek, you become born from above. He comes and you become born again, spiritually alive in Christ. Now, that's why all of a sudden you have an interest in reading the Bible. And the Bible starts to make sense. Now you want to witness to people. Now you want to hang around with godly uh, Christians. You want to study the scripture. You want to pray. You want to talk to God. Why? Because you're spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit now indwells you as a believer. But here's the problem. We're talking again tonight. How does Satan get at us? Satan and demons. These three things. We already talked about the world. Tonight we're talking about the flesh. And again, that's that old sin nature. That's the old you. The Bible says that as a Christian, we're created as a new creation. We're new in Christ Jesus right? How many guys, when you got saved, you literally all of a sudden woke up the next day and your hair was different, uh, your skin color was wonderful and gleaming, and, and you, you know, if you were short, you grew taller. If you're too tall, is that even possible? Anyway, no, no, no. No, nice try, nice try. See, after the flesh, see, little do you know, Sandra, after the flesh, we're talking about direct attacks of the evil one, 
Okay, we'll get to there in a second now. But anyway, so uh, nice try. But anyway, so what we saw there is uh, you become alive in Jesus Christ, okay? But then that's when the battle begins with your flesh, okay? The old you is still there. The brand new you is created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to live in this sphere, to walk and live and keep in step with this. Oh, that's where the victory is. Before we get to heaven, this is an awesome way of life. More love, more joy, more peace, patience, kindness. You do this and live in this sphere, living it, walking and keeping step. It's awesome. Can I tell you, that's one of the best commercials for the non-Christian to see, okay? But guess what? The old you, that's not you anymore. As we saw before, the voice you hear, so to speak, is the, the ghost voice. I call it the ghost voice. It's not you. It's just the ethereal. Okay, you don't have to listen. You don't have to obey. No longer than, than the world has, you have to listen to the world. You don't have to listen to the enemy. Oh, you'll hear the influences, but you don't have to. Because you're new now. You got that? So we're talking about this sphere tonight. The one of the three ways he gets his little fingers into us. The flesh. The old Jew. Okay? The rebel. Okay? In uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian believers, bottom of 77, he states the following. But I say, walk by the spirit. That's this sphere over here. Walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the what? The flesh. The old you. The rebel. Okay? He says, uh, for the flesh, the old Jew, sets its desire against what? The spirit, that's why these things, that's the battle every single day. You got the spirit of God saying, go here. You got the old you going here, which is influenced by these. It's just, Bleh. and you got the two things going on. And the spirit against the flesh, and these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, the Greek word translated flesh here is sarks, okay? And Schaefer writes of the word, when sustaining an ethical significance, which it is in our passage, it refers to that part of man which, because of the fall, is opposed to God and to holiness. It is a fallen nature which, though expressing itself through the deeds of the body, down here, okay, is nevertheless to be identified as that which is immaterial and related to the material only as all that is immaterial is resident in and expressed through the material. Now, let me translate that for you. How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could... I can't even say that either because that was rough. (laughs) What? So let's just say this. So the flesh here is the fallen nature we inherit from Adam that has a natural bent towards sin. It's that rebellious streak inside of us. It's the old you, okay, that we don't have to listen to, but we're all born with such a nature, okay? And again, that's why we have freedom in Christ, not to indulge, Paul says, in the old way of living, the old, the flesh guy, don't listen to that guy anymore. You don't have to, woo, there's freedom. At least, praise God, we got an alternative, right? Now, again, see, this is, the, this is the quandary. This is the darkness. This is the emptiness. This is the vanity. This is the hopelessness of the lost person, the unsaved person, because they don't have that influence from the Spirit. This is all they got, man. And you wonder why? If that's all you got and you're not alive to the things of God and His Spirit, the things just continue to get worse and worse, right? The Spirit of God, at least we have an option, okay? And we not just have an option. We have a way out. Uh, every single time if we would just choose it paul expressed his struggle with the flesh the old paul the old you the old us in romans chapter 7 when he said i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my what the old you there's nothing good about that guy okay for the wishing is present in me but the doing of good is not again hey the old you before the spirit of god made you alive in christ i'm gonna be good and do everything perfectly right for 24 hours hey you can wish that you're not gonna do it it's just not going to happen. That's what he's talking about uh, in the sphere there. He says, uh, uh, we, when we become Christians, we have said to die to sin. Okay, in other words, you, you die to this. You don't, don't live in that sphere anymore. Don't do it. Don't go there. You don't have to anymore. You've been set free from that. Paul goes on to explain that this death to sin means that we are no longer what? Slaves to sin. What's he talking about? This sphere right here. I don't have to do that. I don't have to live that way anymore. And this is why I've said it before. I'm not too hip when it comes to a lot of the secular psychology verbiage when it gives the impression that a person, even a Christian, is going to be forever recovering. You might call it semantics, but I'm telling you, that's, not, that's, that's hopeless. Jesus says, no, I got victory over that. I just need to learn to walk in the Spirit and I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's hope in that, Okay. I'm not a constantly recovering old person. That guy's dead. I'm not a slave to him anymore. Okay, I'm telling you, it makes all the difference when you understand what's going on there. Let's continue on. He says, I'm not a slave to that thing anymore, i.e. it doesn't sovereignly reign over us anymore. Not that our sin natures were annihilated, 
Some people actually teach that. It's a false teaching. No, you still got to deal with that old rebel. Okay. We will struggle against our sin nature. Your next two blanks there. Sin nature, the old you, as long as we are on this earth. Won't that be awesome? I mean, there's times when I just take a look at scripture and the, some of the descriptions we've gotten and just expound on it and go, and just let your mind go nuts. And what does it mean to never have sorrow again? That's, that's one, of, one of the things the Bible tells us. What's it mean to never have pain ever? Yeah, <laughs> let's go now. Okay, right? But, but, but see, when we go to heaven, we also lose this guy. This guy ain't going. Anybody excited about that? Can you imagine just, I mean, if we had no other description about heaven and all it was was we finally understood this guy and what he's done to us and the rebel and it causes all the problems and is the, even the foot in the door for the temptation to work in the first place from the world and the, the enemy is gone. We'll never rebel again against God. Well, that sounds boring. No, because God's commands is the best way. It's the right way. All of God's commands are good. That's the best way. And so when that's gone... It's always perfect, always right. And here's the cool thing. The people you get to hang out with in heaven, guess what? They ain't got it either. So that means every relationship always forever and ever and ever is perfect. Isn't that awesome? That's just losing the sin nature, okay? He says, but this, and as long as we're on earth, though, we're going to have to deal with this critter, okay, the rebel. Okay, you don't have to obey it, but you're going to have to deal with it. Well, listen to this. He says this. He says, now Paul states, now the works of the flesh, the old you are this. And he says, well, okay, Pastor Billy. I'm a mighty strong Christian. And I'm, I'm walking by the Spirit of God. I'm uh, sanctified. I'm holified. I'm fried this, fried this, all that kind of fried stuff. And, and I'm so spiritual. I'm just awesome and mighty. I tell you what, everybody's got to be like me. Well, how do you know? How do you know if a person really is a spiritual Christian? How do you really know if a person is really living in this versus this sphere? Well, that's what Paul says. It's obvious. You can say all you want. Oh, I'm a mighty strong Christian. I'm awesome. I'm incredible. I'm all that kind of sanctified stuff. Really? Well, let's take a look. Here's some indicators that you are not following the things of God. You're listening to this old rebel. That's what he says. And that's what he says here. Uh, Immorality. Is your life full of immorality as a Christian? Guess what? You're listening to the old rebel. That ain't from God. He says this. Impurity, sensuality. Is that what you're indulging in? That's not from God. That's this old guy seducing you, pulling you down. You don't have to be a slave to that anymore. He continues on. He says, idolatry. Is there anything more important to you than God? That car, money, things, possessions. What is it? That's, an, that's not from God. That's this old guy. He's trying to suck you down into that. Don't, don't do that. You don't have to. He continues on. Sorcery. Why, Christians? Hey, I, told, I shared you that story a couple weeks ago. That Christian that went over there and was messing with the Ouija board. It's like, come on. There was another Christian, I kid you not, actually was going through hard times and instead of going to the word of God, they actually went and paid a psychic to, get a, to find out what's going to happen in the future. They were so concerned about it. I was like, mm, what? Yeah, but they told me, oh, of course, if they butter you up, it's me. No, oh, anyway, whatever. It's like, you got to begin. So, and enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, what? That ain't from God. You're listening to the rebel. You don't have to do that. Don't go there, he says. Okay? He continues on. Drunkenness, carousing, things like these. Listen to this. Of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there you have it, folks. A Christian can lose their salvation. No. Well, what's he talking about? He says, can Christians do some of these things? Unfortunately, yeah. When you listen to the rebel, that's how he's going to suck you down. That's what Paul says. These are the things of the rebel. These are the things of the flesh. It's obvious when you're listening to the rebel, not to the spirit of God, when you do these things. So a Christian can do them contextually. Well, what's he talking about? He says, if you do them, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, but he says practice, meaning a way of life. If by and large, this is even after professing to know Christ as your savior, and yet you continue to do this, by and large, this really is your practice. Bare minimum, you got some serious red flags going on. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Titus. Titus. That's a manly name. Isn't that cool? I like that. Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Listen to what he says. Or Paul says to Titus here. Uh, let's take a look. There it is. Titus chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. And he says this. To the pure, 
all things are pure. You know, you're living in the spirit, walking, you know. And, uh, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. Okay, in fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Now, listen, to those who don't believe, the non-Christian, that's all they got. That's the only influence they have. That's a messed up existence. He says, now they claim to know God, but by their what? Their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, they're disobedient, and they're unfit for doing anything good. So you mean to tell me that there are people who claim to know God? But if you look at their practice, and their practice is of such things as that whole list there, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Never were saved in the first place. Matthew 7, let's take a look at another passage. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says this, he says, hey, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, see, you have to live a perfect, obedient life in Jesus Christ and do God's will all the time. Otherwise, no. Practice. What is the way of your life? What What is the general direction of your life? Over time. Okay, is there any resistance? You see, these are in opposition. There should be an opposition if you have the Spirit of God in you. I'm not saying perfection. But there's got to be an opposition. Does does it even bother you that you're involved in the immorality? Does it even bother you when you're you're causing the dissension and the faction? Does it even bother you that you keep going out and getting drunk? Does it even... Something's wrong. Better minimum red flag. Don't go there. You're either getting seduced by the old guy or maybe you profess to know Christ. But you're really not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you say, Lord, Lord. Oh, yeah. But listen to what Jesus said. He says this, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, uh, verse 18, they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Every single one of those can be a satanic counterfeit. Satan can do those, it would appear. Drive out demons. Non-Christians, he can do that. Okay. Uh, doesn't mean you can be a Christian. Prophesy doesn't mean it's really from God, but you can prophesy. Any false prophets around? Miracles? Does Satan do any counterfeit miracles? Yeah, so, so these are, but see, these are like Christian things. I mean, Lord, come on, I was doing these Christian things. And what's Jesus say? I'm going to tell you plainly, I never knew you. I didn't know you once and then you lost it because you're, no. I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. Oops. James chapter 2, one of the verses that I, uh, quoted to the guy in the office there because the demons and the things speaking through his head were saying, well, you just got to love God. I said, excuse me? I says, the Bible says, and knowing who you're dealing with here, I said, the Bible says even the demons believe in God and they shudder. They're not saved. And I kept drilling it, man. Dude, you got to call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now. You need to be saved. You need to call upon Jesus now. Okay, you're being duped. Okay, and they just kept taking these rabbit trails and these voices in his head and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, so you can believe in God. You can do so-called Christian works. You can do all this stuff, but if the, by and large the pattern of your life is in the sphere of this guy, something's seriously wrong. One more passage, let's continue on. Okay, and I want to clarify that because what's Paul say? He, he lists some activities that a Christian can do, not recommended, can do when you get seduced by this guy. But he follows up with that statement, and people take this out of context. And see, right there, if you practice such things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You lose... No. Scripture interprets Scripture is the general interpretation rule. One more, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. Here's what he says. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is is, uh, coming, even now many Antichrists have come, opposers of Christ. This is how we know it's the last hour. Listen, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Well, I know somebody who said he was a Christian, and he did all this stuff, and he was doing those prophecy stuff, and he was performing miracles, and, and he was, uh, you know, he was professing Jesus. He would say, Lord, 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 all day long, and all that stuff. But, but then he became an atheist. What's the Bible say? He lost his salvation? No. He never really belonged to us. Because if he would have belonged to us, he would have remained. But his going showed he never belonged to us. Right? Put all that together in the context, and Paul's saying that, oh no, if you're a Christian, you got seduced and got involved in immorality or some of the other stuff mentioned there in that litmus test there, the list of behavior, um, you lost your. No, he's not saying that. 
But what he is saying is, man, if you keep going down that route and there is no regret, no repentance, no nothing, you can give a rip and bare minimum, I don't know anybody's heart, but bare minimum, that's a serious red flag, man. And you might be fooling yourself, but here's the deal, you're not fooling God. Okay, because there has to be a struggle if you're a born-again Christian because you've got the Spirit of God and he's not going to keep silent. He's going to be working at you, convicting you uh, with that. Now, we can, even over time, unfortunately, just become extremely callous, but it's still there's got to be some sort of opposition, okay? In James' epistle, he gives a step-by-step description of how temptation leads to sin and death. In dealing with temptation, we ultimately make a choice to sin or to obey. Although the world and the devil are outside sources of temptation, it is ultimately our own inner lust, again, the old guy, the old Jew, the rebel, that is the ultimate source of temptation. That's the only reason why it works in the first place is because you got an old you in there that wants to do it. Feed me, feed me, feed me, right? Otherwise, it doesn't work. It's like, I'm sorry, if you guys sit here and uh, you try to offer me a piece of chicken, ain't happening, man. Okay, but unfortunately, I've heard that some of you guys eat it, so the old you would go, yeah, give it to me, give it to me. And you get sucked into that evil. You see what I'm saying? So that's what he's talking about here. I, yeah, that worked out great. Okay, let's continue on. Uh, J. Ronald Blue comments on this, James 1.4. He says, the source of temptation is from within. It's the old you, not the real you, the new you created in Christ who walks and lives by means of the spirit. This is the old you within a person. It's his own evil desire, the old you, the rebel, the lust, the inner craving. He is dragged away and enticed. This inner craving draws the person out like a fish from its hiding place and then entices him, the verb delazo, to bait, to catch a fish with bait or hunt with snares. So listen, here's what happens. So a person, the old you, and I keep wanting to clarify that so you don't get confused. That's not you anymore as a born-again Christian. You're a new creature and a creation in Christ. The enemy doesn't want you to figure that out. Doesn't want you to understand that scripturally because if you don't get it that you're a brand new creation and you don't have to, you will think you have to. And you're a slave to sin and you'll never recover. That's a lie. Okay, so that's what he says here. So the old you, a person, both builds and baits his own trap. Falling into temptation progresses from craving, creating the curiosity, then enticement, then the conception. That's when you actually say, okay, yeah, I'm going to do her. And then the birth of sin, okay? And the end result is spiritual poverty, moral, and sometimes physical death. What? Are you serious? Yeah, it happens all the time. Somebody, uh, uh, well, you go back to that list. They get involved in immorality. Come down with some sort of uh, sexually transmitted disease, AIDS, and you're dead. It leads to death, Okay? Uh, how about uh, enmity, strife, anger, and stuff like that? You ever hear about somebody get so angry they do something dumb and they hit somebody and they get mad and they get in a fight and somebody shoots them? That can happen. I'm drunkenness? Okay, you could crash and kill yourself or kill other people. Don't listen to this guy. That's not a path of, yeah, it's the great life. Jesus rescued us from that existence. Although the full responsibility of falling to temptation is the Christian's, it needs to be kept in mind that it is Satan who has created this world system that displays before the believer so many sinful entertainments. Boy, is that true or what? Okay? And this is the way Satan is involved in affecting a Christian uh, through the flesh, the old you. All right? Let's take a look at his direct influence. And this is a good one because this needs to be clarified. There's a lot of false teaching out there, unfortunately. In light of the proliferation of books out today teaching that Christians can be demon-possessed, not true, It is important for us to show the unbiblical nature of such teaching. The Bible is clear that at the point of salvation, the Holy Spirit takes up what kind of residence? Permanent residence within us. Paul writes, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? That's right. Tell me I said Robert Dean State. The Holy Spirit lives inside everyone who knows Christ. Assuming then that if you don't know Christ, what? He ain't there. Okay. Uh, He dwells in their house. Uh, and in addition, 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in this world, Satan and the demonic forces. Therefore, a demon is not able to enter and take control of a believer because the Holy Spirit lives there. You really think he's going to scooch over, all right, come on in. I really don't like this, you know. We're God's temple. God's the one who's in control. I don't think so. Okay, we can picture it this way. Since the Holy Spirit lives in the house of a believer... Then every time a demon knocks at the door, guess who answers? The Holy Spirit, God. Since God, the Holy Spirit, is stronger than any demonic beings, we just read that verse, including Satan himself, then no demon or evil spirit could enter. It's that simple. God is greater than Satan, and thus he protects his children. 
Several other New Testament passages indicate that Christ's victory over Satan and the demonic was so great that he cannot, is your blank there, cannot come back and repossess believers. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer that the Father keep them, Christians, from the evil one. We know that the Father has heard and is fulfilling Christ's request. The Apostle John later wrote that each believer is kept by God and that the evil one, what? Does not touch him. Now, it's hard to imagine how a believer could be demon-possessed, but also said to have not been touched by the evil one. Certainly, this passage would add weight to the teaching that believers cannot be demon-possessed. And he adds another one. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, that the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and what? Protect you from the evil one. This protection is based on the Lord's faithfulness. Okay? It's hard to believe that our faithful Lord's protection would allow one of his children to become demon-possessed. Right? It's almost like a smack in the face of Jesus. Oh, yeah, thanks for that protection. Right? But it's not true. Okay? It doesn't make sense in light of scriptures. Although Christians cannot be possessed, listen, they can be severely oppressed. And there's the big difference there. They can mess with you on the outside, but they ain't come and praise God anymore on the inside. Okay? Uh, they can be oppressed or influenced. Satan employed lightning, a whirlwind, disease to afflict Job. Okay, that's all external. And cult involvement infects the believer, listen, by making him be in this guttural voice. And he's drawing this pentagram and he's doing all this. Well, hopefully not. Notice what they do to the believer. We, we talked about this last week. Deadly. I love that word. Not just indifferent, but deadly indifferent to the word of God, to prayer, to worship, and to spiritual life in general. Why? Because he, he wants you down here, man. He'll make you a slave, even though you're not. He'll get you to act like it, live like it. That's what he wants you to do. And then, even though you are saved, a born-again Christian, man, can, hey, here's a good word. Rotten. You're a rotten commercial for Jesus. I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And all this, bleh, all this stuff you're doing. Okay, that's, that's what and Satan's about, remember? That's what he wants to do, uh, is what he's talking about. But, but do you really think it's by chance? This is, what, two or three times in our study he said this. And we talked about the witchcraft and the Satans and, and the demons and what they do to Christians and what their plan is from the horse's mouth, Satanists, former Satanists and former witches. Do you really think it's by chance that you get up in the morning and say, I just don't have time for prayer? Where, where do you think that one came from? That was the Spirit of God telling me that it's okay no that's either the world the flesh of the devil i'll tell you that right now well you know what i just i just don't need to come to wednesday night bible study maybe, maybe next week yep that came from god because he's giving me a break no don't think so you know what i tell you, i i man i know i need to read the bible but you know what gosh it's it's almost may all right next january <laughs> january 1st new year's resolution baby Woo! You think that came from God? Instead, crack open that day. Don't even wait till tomorrow. Where do you think that comes from? That's what he's talking about. Okay? In some cases, God may allow Satan and his minions to oppress Christians to choose, who choose to become involved in some type of open rebellion towards him. Uh, and he might use things uh, such as immorality for chastening purposes. Okay? That's what we see with Paul. In Paul's case, he was given, uh, what he was given was possibly a physical illness sight problems possibly uh, which was caused by a demon to keep him humble what yeah god will do what it takes to get his kids attention open real quick to that passage second corinthians chapter 12 and let's read that and uh, which again in in, a, in another sort of ways you turn there second corinthians chapter 12 verse 7 uh that really tells uh even when it comes to demonic oppression uh and just the demon world in general who's in charge there God is. God is. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay? Paul says this, to keep me from becoming what? Conceited because of these surpassing the great revelations because remember he was caught up into the third heaven and in the actual dwelling place of God the Father heard some incredible awesome things. Okay, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a what? Messenger. That's where we get the word angel. It's the exact same word, angelas. Angel. A messenger of Satan. What's that? That's a demon to torment me three times i plead with the lord to take it away from me but he said my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore i will boast all the more gladly about my weakness 
uh, so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul finally got it. God allowed that to keep him from, from becoming conceited. And it also kept Paul utterly, at, uh, uh, on a consistent basis, completely dependent on God's grace to get him through. And so he says, man, praise God for all these hardships. Praise God for the privations and the insults and the injuries and even this demon that's allowed to torment me because it forces me to depend on God, meaning I am not sufficient, I am weak. And when you finally get that Christian and you really get locked in with Jesus Christ, woo, you want to talk about strength. Now, now you wouldn't have to go to those extremes if you just do it voluntarily and live there. But God loves us. Have you noticed that? He loves us so much, he'll give us spanky wankies. He loves us so much, he has, he accepts us for who and what we are and where we are. But you know what? When we start going south, he'll do what it takes because he loves his kids. He loves us. He'll spank us right back on track. And sometimes, we even see Paul, hey, he'll use a demonic thing to get your attention. He might even use a physical illness like he did with Paul to get our attention. But God is still sovereign. That's the good message there. In light of all that we discuss, it must be constantly kept in mind that God is still sovereign is your next blank there, over all that Satan and the demons do. We saw Job chapter 1. Who's there reporting with the angels in front of God? Satan. He's not a loose cannon on deck. God is sovereign and perfect control of the universe. His plan will prevail in spite of satanic opposition. Okay, Who wins at the end of the seven-year tribulation? Right? Who is actually being used as a tool during the seven-year tribulation? Satan. God is using him as a tool. He's not in charge. He's never been in charge. He's on death row awaiting his final sentence into the lake of fire. Okay, God is the one that's in charge. And he uses God, sometimes demons, to chastise or chasten the godly. In Peter's case, the Lord used Satan's sifting to separate truth from falsehood. Okay, Job was refined in his furnace uh, with satanic testing. Okay, the uh, immoral Corinthian believer was delivered to Satan for physical death because that he might be preserved for spiritual eternal life. What? Yeah, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's a wild passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And listen to what Paul says. Listen to this. Now this is to a church. Okay? A Corinthian church. He says, it is actually reported that there is what? Sexual immorality among you, that never happens in churches, is it? Well, that's only half the problem. Listen, it was their action, it was their behavior towards it. Okay? And a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and listen to this, and you are proud? Oh, we're liberal. Come one, come all. Jesus loves everyone. You're not supposed to judge people. You can't say nothing. Anything goes, hey, you just leave them alone, and eventually through osmosis, maybe they'll catch on. And you're proud of that? Doesn't that sound exactly like today? Excuse me, you're supposed to deal with sin. And that's what Paul's like, what? He says, what? He says, shouldn't you rather have been filled with what? Man, when, you, when we hear about sin in the body, we should, oh, oh, God, forgive us. Help us, God. Oh, a brother and sister in Christ, they fall. He said, man, you should be filled with grief, man. And not only that, oh, I guess we'll just, hopefully they'll catch on later. No, what's he say? He said, you should put that, uh, put him out of your fellowship, the man who did this. What, you can kick people out of the church? Yeah, this is one passage. This gets pretty intense here in just a second, if this isn't enough. Titus 3 says the same thing. Warn and device a person once, warn him twice, third time, bye. Okay, Matthew 18, the same principle that's used there. You don't want to respond to it, first contact, second contact, third one, bye. God's program is, it, is never to continue on. Why? Because if you allow a little bit of yeast, sin, and you don't do anything about it, and you don't remove it, it's going to what? It's going to grow. Okay? Let's continue on. He says this. He says, uh, uh, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment. Well, I thought you weren't supposed to judge in the church. I've already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. Now, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature, the rebellious part, the old man may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. How many guys would say that that was dealing with that sin? 
Paul wasn't even there. And he says, I'm not even going to wait until I get back there next time. I'm going to write you a letter right now and say, get rid of that right now. Why? Because if I think, believe it's that same passage, you continue on, he says that. A little bit of yeast. Spreads. Better watch out. Top of page 80 real quick. It says this, what should our response to Satan's attack be? Unfortunately, there's much unbiblical teaching being propagated on how we are to relate to satanic and demonic attacks. Now, with this in mind, it's important that we know what the Bible commands the believer to do in response to Satan's attack. Uh, the only command given to believers for dealing with Satan is to resist. Is your blank there? Resist the devil. It is significant that this command is given three times in the New Testament. Okay? First Peter and James and Ephesians. The word translated resist means to stand against or to oppose. It is a compound of the Greek uh, preposition anti, meaning against, and histamine, you know, like antihistamine. That's where it comes from. Hey, you learn something new every day. <laughs> Which means to stand. Okay, so you put it all together. It means to set oneself against, to oppose, to resist, to withstand. Okay, you use the antihistamine to oppose, to stand against all those allergies or whatever is making your nose do its funky stuff. Okay, that's what it means there. Ephesians 6 is well-known passage where the believer is instructed to put on the armor of God. The reason given is so that you will be able to resist or stand against the devil. Now, notice that when Paul tells us why we are to put on the armor, he says it will enable us to stand and a histamine. Okay, verse 13, but also that we may be able to stand firm. The word stand firm is simply another word used for the same word, resist. It is the Greek word histomy, which means to stand. We resist the devil by putting on the armor of God. Well, Pastor Bill, aren't we supposed to bind and loose those demons? Aren't we supposed to call them out by name and say, I, I call you out there, you spirit of bubblegum, you get out of that person, I tell you. No. In fact, that's probably one of the most misused, misquoted passages of scripture matthew 16 is one of it matthew 18 turn there real quick okay this is amazing when you take a look at this text and then you see what people have done with it and it's demon warfare what and you got to bind you got to lose which i always thought was interesting as you turn there matthew 18 you know if you could actually somehow uh, bind satan or bind a demon okay then why in the world would you turn right around the next breath and loose them <laughs> wouldn't you want to keep that bugger bind bound for Let's take a look at the context of that passage. Matthew 18, okay, verse 15. Now, notice the, the context of this is church discipline. Okay, let's take a look. Let's read the passage, then we'll rip into it. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. Step one. If he listens to you, hey, praise God, you won your brother over. All right, but he didn't say, well, you got to stop there. No, you keep going. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. All right, well, that didn't work, so what do you do? Well, just let it go and let it fester. No, keep going. Uh, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a, t a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, bye. Okay? Now, and he says this, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Can I ask the common sense question? That context of the passage is dealing with discipline. Church discipline. Right? Says it right there. Where in that whole passage did the word demon ever once appear? How about Satan? No. What's the passage dealing with? Church discipline. So what's he talking about? The binding and loosening. Okay? As a church... That when you have to go to the point where you're going to uh, 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 cast somebody out of the church as a disciplined behavior, okay, biblically, then it's good as gold. It's got God's blessings on it. Let me, let me give an, uh, uh, an analogy. Uh, one guy writes on this. Uh, he says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, a duly constituted body of believers has the right to tell an unrepentant brother that he is out of line with God's word and has no right to fellowship with God's people. Christians have such authority because they have the truth of God's word by which to judge. The source of the church's authority is not itself uh, any more than the apostles' authority gave uh, in themselves even in their office as exalted it was. Christians can authoritatively declare what is acceptable to God or forbidden by him 
because they have God's word. Christians don't determine what's right or wrong. Rather, on the basis of God's word, they recognize and proclaim what God has already determined as right or wrong. And he gives the thing with the binding, the loosening thing in the context with dealing with discipline. He says, if a person declares himself to be an atheist or anything other than a believer uh, in or a lover of Jesus Christ... Christians can say to that person with absolute certainty, you are under God's judgment and you are condemned to hell. Why? Because that's what the word of God says. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Okay? He says, if on the other hand, a person testifies that he's trusted Christ as his saving Lord, Christians can say to him with equal certainty, if what you say is true, then your sins are forgiven, you are a child of God and your eternal destiny is in heaven. Why? Why can we make that authoritative statement? Because of the word of God. That's the context of the passage. The authority of the church lies in the fact that it has heaven's word on everything pertaining to life and godliness. When believers are in agreement with God's word, God is in agreement with them. And so believers can declare a person's spiritual state with divinely granted authority, binding and loosening, by comparing that person to the word of God. And so even if you have to go to the point where somebody gets kicked out of the church, whatever you're buying on earth, same thing in heaven. You're in, in accordance with God's will. Do you see the context of that? And again, I believe with the obvious point. Where is the word demon in there? Satan. Where does it talk about spiritual warfare? None of it. Isn't that the most amazing thing? And then that text has been completely taken out, that one verse, wrenched out of the context. You know, demons this, blah, blah, blah. And why do I bring that up? Because what did he say here? This is the warning point as we close. He said, the Bible is clear that our posture against Satan and his dominions is to be defensive, is your blank there, as opposed to offensive. I'm going to take you on. I'm going to call you down. I'm going to, the spirit of bubblegum, you're coming up. No. He has not called us to attack the enemy, but to stand firm against the attacks. But to be able to stand firm, we must learn to put on, and this is the whole next study, Lord willing, the armor of God that he's given to us. This is important to keep in mind. Now listen to this as we close. When believers go on the offensive against Satan, but I'm going to bind you, I'm going to loose you, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to go in that place, and I'm, going to, I'm going to cast out those demons, and, and, and I'm going to bind them, I'm going to loose them, and I, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to, you're, you're, that's the spirit of lust is upon you, brother. It's, I'm going to... He says this. He says, when you do that, you're stepping out of legitimate bounds by becoming involved in situations which the Lord has never intended for them. This offensive type of response was described by Peter as characteristic of false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2. Turn there real quick because you've got to see this. 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, do we have the authority in the name of Jesus Christ to cast out a demon? Absolutely. But uh, contextually, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that bravado. I'm going to take you on. I'm going after you, Satan. You know, call down demons and bind and loose and bind and loose and... That's not what that passage is talking about, okay? We don't have to worry. We don't have to run. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. Greater is he that is in us than he is in this world. We've got the armor of God. we just got to stand there and nothing, not even his fiery darts. You put up that shield of faith, ding, he can't even touch you, man. God's given us everything we need, but to do that other stuff, I don't recommend it, okay? And neither would I say God's word. Second Peter chapter 2, okay? And uh, verse uh, 10, let's take a look there. He says this. He said, uh, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the, guess where this is coming from? The old man, the, the rebellion, the sin nature. And they despise authority. Bold and arrogant these men are. Not afraid to what? Buy, I'm going to buy and lose. I'm going to buy and take you down. To slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme matters they don't even understand. And how many people out there are being taught, yeah, take them on, yeah, go after them, call out those demons. Hey, if a demon shows up, I had one today. Yeah, you better deal with it biblically. Okay? But you don't sit there and do this uh, uh, completely out of contextual thing. I want to buy, I want to lose, I want You know? Maybe even God's gracious and merciful to us if we were taught that way, he'll still protect us. But I would say that's not what the scripture is teaching us. Let me give you one example because he closes with this. And I, I, you got to see, Jude chapter 9 is another one. Put that in your notes. Because Jude 9, not chapter 9, Jude 9, okay? And uh, just the one chapter. Jude 9, uh, and uh, that's where it says the archangel Michael. 
when uh, the spewing of the body did say, hey, he didn't say, I'll take you on. He said, hey, oh, the Lord rebuke you. That's the archangel Michael. Why didn't he say, I'll bind you, I'll listen. Okay, let's continue on. He says, open, often this door, when you go down this route, it opens the door to demonic oppression in the believer's life. I'll give you one story and we've got to close. Uh, this actually happened. And it was one of the guys that uh, um, I knew uh, as a brand new Christian. And uh, obviously I got a lot of questions. And, and uh, at this point in time, he actually, I didn't know, he getting to know him, learning the history. He'd been a Christian for a long time. But when I got saved uh, shortly after that, he was just getting back on track on his walk with Jesus after 10, 15 year hiatus. And you know what happened to him? He was a young buck Christian, surrounded with some other guys, okay? And uh, they got kind of bold, kind of charismatic-y a little, whatever. And uh, they went over to this person's house and feeling like they were dealing with some demonic issues. And so they went out there in that person's front yard and they did this. They let you out there in the front yard just hounding it up big time. Satan, we call, we call you out, show up. We're going to take you down, doing all this. We're going to bind you, losing. They're going through this whole rigmarole. Every single one, I think it was four guys, was in, oppressed for years. And I think, if I have my information correct, after all these years, only that guy, after being messed up for about 10, 15 years, is seeking the Lord again with fervor. I'm not saying the other, you can't lose your salvation, but they got, they got hammered. The spiritual world is real. Okay, if it comes your way like it did today, <laughs> please deal with it biblically. Okay, you don't have to be afraid. But don't make it worse on yourself by thinking you're going to go out of bounds and you're, you're just inviting trouble. Why would you do that? That's what he's talking about here. Lord willing, next time what we're going to do is finally get on. Okay, then how do we deal with that? Well, you need to understand what is the armor of God and uh, how that protects us so you can stand firm against every evil attack of the evil one. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's His standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven 
on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step, to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know, it's actually on historical record, that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so, even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us, this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave, and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.